Evening, everybody. I'm going to pray. Father God, I thank you for all that you are teaching us through uh, John's letter. I do pray that once again, your spirit would bear testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ as we look at his words together. Amen. If you talk to uh, most parents, they'll tell you that the first word their children really master, the nuances the subtleties, the meaning of. The first word they really own is not mummy or daddy, it's no. I always find it's helpful at the morning congregation if there's a toddler having a no tantrum to say to the parents, I generally blame the parents in these situations. They, they really appreciate it when you say that. Um, but there, it is, it's basically, it's the first word we master. No, we don't like obedience. Now, one John, as we've been seeing, is a letter about assurance assurance as Christians. That is not just that uh, I know that Jesus Christ died for sins on the cross in history. I know that he rose again and brings new life. Assurance is I know he died for me and so my sins are forgiven. I know that his new life comes to me through his Holy Spirit and so I do not need to fear death. Now one of the surest signs that we have uh, real or one of the the greatest assurances that we have as a Christian, one of the things that demonstrates the reality of our faith most, that we are in Christ, that he is our identity, our savior, our king. One of the clearest signs both to ourselves and to others around us is that we obey God, that we say yes to God's commands. But this is a... It's not the most natural thing for us. Uh, By and large, we're um, well-educated. Many of us in well-paid jobs are heading towards them. Most of us living not at home anymore. We're not really obedient people. I mean, who do we obey? We don't obey our parents anymore. We don't live with them. We're not... Very few of us, if if I said, think of the first three adjectives, thought experiment. Think of the first three adjectives that describe you. Very few of us reach for obedient Everyone's passionate these days. No one reaches for obedience. It's just not a way we like to think about ourselves. And so tonight's passage comes with a challenge from God for us. Am I, as God desires, an obedient child? Do I follow God closely enough to bring delight and honor and joy to my heavenly father? Or do I always have one eye on the approval of the world and one eye on God? And it's, to be honest, it's a balancing exercise to see what I can get away with. But as ever, God's word does more than just challenge us. It always provides a reason, a motivation, a drive to move us from that slightly resentful toddler to a delighted, obedient child. And let's see how, let's see how John takes us there. So we've got three signs of true Christianity and then three witnesses to the truth of Christianity. Throughout the letter, we've seen really that uh, they've been used, he's used different words at points, and he hasn't put them always together. But these three tests or signs to give Christians assurance have appeared again and again. Belief in the Jesus of the Bible, love for God and other Christians, and obedience to God's word. And as we've learned, the reason they need these is that a third of the church is upped and left. They've gone. They've followed some new teaching, which is not the same as the teaching about Jesus of the Bible. And those who are left behind feel a little bit shaken, uh, 
are we missing out? They're, they're saying that they've got this great new teaching, that they have a, a new and more powerful spiritual anointing. Uh, and they feel a bit weak and fragile, and, and they're starting to wobble as Christians. And so John writes this letter to assure them, no, you are the genuine article. You don't need to fear. You are God's children. You have belief in the Jesus of the Bible. You love God and other Christians. And you obey God's word. Three signs. The point is not that uh, we judge how Christian I am by how well I'm doing. You know, marks out of a hundred on each of the three. You know, am I, am I a real Christian today or meh, only a sort of Christian? Now, the point is where I see these things to some degree in myself or in others, I can rejoice that here is a genuine Christian. Where I see some evidence of these things, I can be reassured. And we'll see the same three appear again in verses 1 to 5. Look with me at verses 1 to 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. To keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, these are very dense verses. So what I'm going to do is just walk us through the logic and then step back and work out uh, what it means, what it says to us. So remember, the second half of chapter 4, as we heard last week, He's taught us that God is love. And so that those who live in God must live in love, must love God and others. So chapter 5, verse 1, to be a Christian, to believe in Jesus Christ, is a supernatural thing. It involves being born of God. That is receiving new life from God. Now this new life from God leads us to love God and to share his love for his other children, that is other Christians. But verse 2, this love is not uh, some sort of vague, warm, fuzzy feeling. It is worked out in concrete action. Just as God's children are loved by all who truly love God, he says, so also God's commands are loved by all who truly love God. In fact, verse 3, one of the most reliable signs that we love God is that we do what he commands. Now, we're able to obey God, he now then says, rather than always given to temptation to live for ourselves and sins, because, verse 4, we've overcome the world. Now, by the world, he means the, the sinful longings of my heart and the temptations that come uh, from the world around. And he's saying, we've overcome the world, verses 4 to 5, through being born again. In other words, we receive God's power to stand firm. And that comes through belief in Jesus Christ. So from our point of view, we put our trust in Jesus Christ. From God's point of view, he's giving us new birth. They're two sides of the same action. And when we put our trust in him, we receive his, that is Jesus' victory over sin and the power of his life. That's how we can overcome. Because as we turn to Jesus Christ and put our belief in him, we receive his power. Now, how does belief relate to obedience here in verse 5? Well, belief in Jesus, in a sense, it breaks the spell of the world. We start to see the world sanely for what it is. We start to see our temptations for what they are, not the path to fulfillment, but to ruin. Okay, let's step back. 
Belief, love, obedience. You'll see they're all there. So Christians are marked by belief in Jesus Christ, which leads us to love God and others, and true love for God is demonstrated by obeying his commands. But as you've probably noticed as we've gone through 1 John, he's quite cyclical in his arguments. He says the same things again and again. I think he thinks we need to hear them again and again. Um, And the the new thing really here, he's talked a lot about uh, love and about belief. But the new thing, I think, is that the thought in verses 2 to 3, that we demonstrate our love for God by obeying his commands. We show that we love God by doing what he tells us by trusting that his word and his wisdom bring life and joy. Now, that's easy enough to understand with our heads. I get that. You know, I can read the, I can read the words in 1 John 5 and say, yep, okay, that's, that's pretty obvious. I love God. I should do what he says. This is love for God, 1 John 5, 3, to keep his commands. Easy. But I'm not sure we really get it because there is a resistance in most of our hearts, if we're honest. Instinctively, every human since Adam and Eve has not liked that thought. And there are three reasons. And you see them in Genesis 3, in Adam and Eve, and you see them in you and me every day of our lives. We forget who God is. We forget what God is like. And we forget what his laws, his commands are like. Firstly, we we forget who God is. We need to remember who we are and who God is. We need to remember that when we relate to God, we're not in a relationship of equals. We are creatures. He is the creator. So if a friend of yours says, um, do you love me as a friend? And you say, yes, of course I do. Well, then you'll do everything I say. Yeah, you need to lose the tyrant complex or we're never going to be friends. That's not how friends relate. Or if a child says to a parent, do you love me, daddy? Yes, of course. Well, then we've been driving on the M1 for two hours. It's my turn to drive now. No, it is not. It's, you don't show love as a parent by obeying everything a toddler commands. You don't show love as a friend by obeying everything another friend commands. But it's not like that with God. He's not our equal. Or worse than that, he's certainly not our servant. He should just do what we say. A better analogy, a much more realistic framework to have in our minds is that it is much more like we are the children and God is the father. There's another speaker I heard uh, illustrate it this way. He says, when I say to my teenage kids, or when your parents said to you when you were teenagers, go clean your room, how do you show love for your parents at that point? He says, he imagines an hour later saying, "Uh, so have you cleaned your room? You know, I love you, daddy. So what I did was uh, I wrote down the words, go clean your room. And I called my friends around and we had a Bible study on those words. We even looked up what they mean in the original Greek. And we've made a song about them and memorized them because we love you so much. That's nice. Did you clean your room? No, but the most important thing is that I really love you, Daddy. Yeah, if you love me, you go and clean your room. Or I will demonstrate my parental love by grounding you. (laughs) It's... When a child is given a command by a loving parent, they demonstrate their love by doing it. And yet we are so good at finding ways around, at doing anything but just doing what God says. 
He is unimaginably superior to us. Parent-child is just an analogy. It is mind-boggling that the great God of the cosmos should should stoop down and, and welcome us to be his friends, should love people as small and insignificant as you and me, and should bring us into his family and enable us to relate to him as a father with children. But we remain his creatures, and he is the creator. We remain the children, and he is the father. And so we love him by doing what he says, because of who he is and who we are. So because of who he is. Secondly, we need to remember his character. God is not some almighty cosmic tyrant. The one commanding us is the one who gave up everything for us. He became hateful, shameful, and despised to save you. He was declared guilty and punished on a cross so that you could be made innocent. He died and was shut out from the presence of God so that you and I could be welcomed in as loved children. In other words, he never calls us to go somewhere he hasn't been or to do something he's not willing to do in that sense. All of us obey somebody. We all obey something. There is, all, there is some principle that governs our lives for all of us. If you follow the God of the Bible, then the principle, the, the rule, the law, the king of your life is the God who is love. We should do what he says because of who he is and what he's like. And lastly, well... We should do what he says because of the nature of his commands. And this is, I think, where we we so often lose the picture. We believe the devil's lies and the world's temptation and our sinful hearts, that God's commands are sort of limiting and joyless. And we believe this because his commands often stop me doing stuff I want to do. That's the way it is, isn't it? We believe this uh, because his commands say stuff is bad, that the world and my heart says looks like fun. Or his commands say that stuff is good, that the world says is just limiting and dull, like putting others first. This is uh, how we often, I think, view uh, God's commands um, with this um, classic picture. Uh, God's law is the bars, and we think fun is out there, and I'm miserable in here, and don't try to tell me none of you have thought like that. All of us have. But the truth of the Bible is not this. The truth is that There is a, God's law is a cage, but it's a cage that keeps sin and death away from us so that we can uh, be a a slightly, they always look a little bit scary, I think. I don't know what it is. It's like um, a strange version of coulrophobia, fear of clowns. But anyway, um, but we can be the happy man. We can be the happy man because outside obeying God is the broad and the open place. It keeps us away from the destructive consequences of sin. I saw that there was a there was a very sad example of this. Um, a couple of actually it was last year. A chap called Anthony Booth Armour. I think we've had enough of uh, the smiley emoticon. Uh, a guy called Anthony Booth Armour. He was um, he was a waiter in a restaurant in California, uh, Clifftop Restaurant. And one day, he uh, he basically said, "I'm going to follow my dream and push myself in what I love 100. That's what I'm going to do, and that's how I'm going to live." And everybody says, "Yes." And what he did was he jumped off the terrace at this um, restaurant, got a friend to film it, into the ocean. And he became an internet sensation overnight. And he basically spent the next year or so jumping, um, climbing over fences, 
and jumping into swimming pools and into the ocean in incredibly dangerous, illegal places. And the internet loved him. And he was, he was a man following his dream, doing what he loved, and the sponsorship deals were starting to fly in. And then he made a miscalculation, and he'll never run again because he shattered his feet so utterly badly, landing on the edge of a pool. And it turns out that he was only going to get $6,000 from internet sponsorship, and his medical expenses were going to run to hundreds of thousand dollars. And a very chastened, sobered young man said this from his hospital bed, I am paying my dues. I need to be more respectful to the laws of the universe. God's laws are good for us. If we understand how foolish our hearts are, we'll be so grateful for a God who puts up fences with signs that say, don't climb, don't jump. God's commands are for our good. God's character is unbelievably good. And God's nature is immense. So if you love him, you'll do what he says. Three signs of true Christianity, belief, love, and obedience. And at the heart of this passage is that one of the hallmarks of the Christian is not just that we do what God says, but that we show our love for him by doing what he says. And then three witnesses to the truth of Christianity. We start to get from the subjective now to the objective. Verses six to nine. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He's picking up on uh, the second half of verse 5. Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Okay, not the most straightforward of passages, it's got to be said. Uh, there have been a few debates on this one. Uh, what on earth is going on? Well, if you like, the, the first five verses we just looked at, three signs you're a real Christian. You know you're a genuine believer because it makes a difference to how you live. In particular, you now obey God as a sign of your love for him. Not perfectly, but really. And that's subjective. That's something you, you see in someone's life. It's something you see in your own life. It's about the difference that following Jesus makes to you. Verses 6 to 9, objective. Three witnesses that, uh, not that you believe in Jesus, but three witnesses that Jesus is true. This is objective facts on which Christianity is grounded. Now, I doubt many of us have had a discussion with a friend who's not yet a Christian and uh, found ourselves, oh gosh, how do I answer that question? I know. You know, the thing that will settle everything for you is when you realize about the water and the blood. And they say, oh, of course. Okay. Why didn't you tell me? Okay, I'll, I'd love to become a Christian. It, uh, you know, what, what, how, how is this, what on earth is he writing? But his target is not so much the, uh, the atheists of 21st century London or even the pagans of 1st century Rome. Uh, he's writing to strengthen the Christians who have been caused um, to doubt their own faith, and what the truth of Jesus really is because of what other supposed Christians are saying about Jesus, and in particular whether he's really God and really human. So he's, he's actually addressing a, a particular situation. Um, we'll think about uh, what it means for us in a moment. Let me just explain what's going on in the passage first. Uh, what is going on with the water and the blood? 
There has been a lot of debate down the ages. I think that the, one of the first writers to address it in um, the early centuries, Tertullian, got it right. He says, water refers to Jesus' baptism at the start of his earthly ministry, and the blood, his death for sins, at the climax of his earthly ministry. Now, remember, uh, turn back over to chapter 4, verse 3. You've got to stay awake for this bit. We're going to concentrate hard, and then we'll, uh, don't worry, we'll explain what it, why it's important. He says, 4.3, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the false teachers are denying that Jesus is fully God and fully man. We've seen that. And shortly afterwards, a heretic called uh, Corinthus appeared who led loads of people astray. And it's interesting, what he taught is that uh, Jesus was just an ordinary human and then the divine nature came onto him at his baptism in the water and then it departed from him before his bloody death. But John and all the apostles taught clearly that Jesus was and always will be fully man and fully God. Nothing changed at his baptism in the water and nothing changed at his blood-soaked death. Hence, he says, he came by water and blood. They are witnesses to the fact that he is fully God and fully man. Now, it's not the way it's actually often used in Christian hymns. And in fact, I believe the last hymn we're going to sing tonight uses it differently, which is awkward. Um, but, it, but it's all right, because it still says something true. So, you, so don't be all, well, I'm not singing that line. Um, uh, often uh, hymns will pick it up as water as a shorthand for, um, for purification, which it often is in the Bible, and blood as a shorthand uh, for propitiation, for Jesus' sacrificial death in our place. Purification and propitiation, water and blood. It's true. So you can sing it and enjoy it. It's just not exactly the point that's being made here. Okay, what about the Spirit? We're almost there working out what this means. Uh, The Spirit, verse 6, testifies. He bears witness to the truth about Jesus. And verse 9, he is God. So it's God's testimony. Here you go. In other words, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are historical facts. Right at the start of, uh, of the letter of 1 John, he writes this, that which was from the beginning, 1 John 1 verse 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim to you. So the Holy Spirit enabled John and the other eyewitnesses to proclaim, to testify to tell God's truth about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit testifies to Jesus through the apostles who he appointed. And he also enables you and me as we read the Bible to understand and recognize the truth. Okay, if it was all a bit, ooh, I'm not quite, it's a bit warm in here tonight for once, for the first time in two months. uh, Look, you are not an idiot for believing in Jesus. That's the take home. You're not an idiot if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the take home. Now, we don't necessarily have the same questions that the people John's writing to had, the same particular theological issues that they're wrestling with, the same doubts that they need addressing. But like them, we face the question, is this true? If I'm going to stake my life on it, If I'm going to risk being seen as a weirdo and being shut out in our culture and all the costs that might come with sacrificing things for Jesus, I need to know it's true. If you're a Christian, 
you lean your trust on, you invest your future in bankable facts. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. His life and death represented by the water and the blood. Bankable historical facts that are testified to by the Holy Spirit in the book he inspired, the Bible. This gives you solid grounds for believing that Jesus is who he says he is. We don't have to be people of blind faith. We shouldn't be. John, at the end of the gospel account of Jesus that he wrote, said, these things are written that you may believe. We need evidence. Christianity is not about blind faith. It's about reasoned trust in the historical facts of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of which leads to one crucial question for us here tonight. Three tests or signs, three witnesses, one crucial question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Not in the sense of, uh, do you think he really existed? Uh, Every historian in the world accepts he existed. But do you trust in him as your God? Do you trust that he came by blood, that he died on a cross for your sins so that you might be forgiven? Do you trust that he rose from the dead to give you life from the grave? Verses 10 to 12. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar. Because God, they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony God has given us. Eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. And this is where it gets sharp for us. Because you can have assurance as a Christian, or you can have assurance as a Christian because the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are clear, solid, and bankable. But because you can be sure about Jesus Christ, well, then it's very clear that you either have him or you don't. Jesus is not a subjective feeling that, well, if I have a kind of warm feeling about Jesus or ideas about him, then that makes me a Christian. No, there is a solid set of facts about Jesus. To be a Christian is to believe these things about this Jesus. But that means that if I don't believe those things, there is no assurance and there is no salvation, and there is no life. You can accept that, or you can reject that. But to reject it is to declare that the God of the Bible is a liar. To accept it is to receive eternal life. And there is no in-between. There is no fence. But what a glorious message that there is life in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the passage ends where it begins. Uh, Look with me at verse 1 and verse 12. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. It should be no surprise that the John who wrote uh, perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible uh, would talk about belief. He wrote, 
John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. should be no surprise that that John would stress belief in Jesus. Okay, let me, uh, as we close, let me just try and pull things together and show you how this whole passage uh, fits together because it seems like it's got various different bits. In one sense, actually, if you start at the end, you can then come back and see how it fits together. You see, because the facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not fake news but real historical events, you should put your trust in him, verses 6 to 12. Because those facts reveal Jesus to be God, our creator and king, we should obey him, verses 1 to 5. And because those facts tell us he died on a cross to save us from our sins, we should obey out of thank-filled, joy and wonder-soaked love for him. Now, if you call yourself a Christian, I don't know whether this bites for you tonight or this week, but this is where the reality of our belief is proven in our obedience to God. We are to obey his word and his, follow his wisdom in matters of money and relationships, family and careers, possessions and work. Trusting that God is God, so I should do what he says, and God is good. So when I walk his way, I'm on the path towards blessing. And God is no man's debtor. Obedience will always bring eternal blessing with God and fruitfulness in this life. Uh, I've, had a, I've had man flu this weekend, terribly serious condition, enormously serious. Uh, it's touch and go as to whether I pull through. But um, one, of the, one of the good things about a day in bed is, uh, is box sets. Um, you can just watch your way through basically anything, and you, have, you don't need to feel guilty because that's all you can really do. Uh, and um, still my favorite box set uh, still the thing I, I enjoy going back to more than anything is Band of Brothers. And it's just relentlessly good. I think somebody said every man thinks a bit less of himself for not having been a soldier. And so it probably sort of feeds that. But it's a, it's a brilliant, brilliant real life account of, uh, of one of the companies in the American Airborne Division from D-Day through to the end of the war as they liberate Europe from the Nazis. And the, um, the central character is a guy called Captain Richard Winters who is a, he is a really noble, God-fearing man. And he has to take control of the, of the company um, because the superior officer is killed on D-Day. And he's got a group of men who do not know him and aren't very sure about him. And they obey him, basically, because he is the commanding officer. But over the course of the next two weeks, his leadership saves their lives and wins battles on literally countless occasions. Almost every engagement they face better trained more battle-hardened foes, and it is only his brilliant leadership and his courage under fire that saves them. And the interesting thing is that when they, they, they interview all these uh, talking heads, these now old men, um, towards the end of their lives, looking back, and they ask them, well, you know, why, why did you follow this guy? And none of them say, well, because he was the captain. I've been shot. It's war. You have to do what he says. They all said, We'd have gone anywhere for him. We'd have done anything for him. He was amazing. He protected us. He saved us. He led us. We'd have done anything for that man. You know, the, the heart of the Christian life, 
the heart of the Christian life is when we start to realize that obedience isn't something we do because, well, if there's a God, I suppose I better do what he says. The heart of the Christian life is when we realize that God has become the man Jesus Christ and died on a cross to set us free, to give us eternal life and forgiveness as a free gift. And because of that, when we come to know God is a God like that, we obey him not because he's God and I have to, not because I think if I obey him, things will go better, but because I love him, because he's the God who's given everything for me. Let's pray. This is love for God, to keep his commands. Father God, we thank you that if we put our trust in the Son of God, we have life and forgiveness. Our Father, I pray that we would understand what it cost for us to have that life. And we would understand what you are like for giving it to us. And so I pray that our lives would be marked by a delight to do what you say because we love you. Amen.